Welcome to Firefighting in Canada, the podcast, brought to you by Draeger. Draeger products protect, support, and save lives. Firefighting equipment you can trust. You've tuned in for compelling conversation on hot topics impacting Canada's fire service. I'm Hope BC's Fire Chief, Tom DeSorcy, and joining me today is Fire Chief Dan Derby of the Kootenai Boundary Regional Fire Rescue in BC, and Deputy Fire Chief Tim Calhoun of Clarington, Ontario. Today, we're talking about emergency preparedness, mitigation, and management. Dan and, uh, and Tim, uh, welcome. It's nice to have you here today. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Thank you. Welcome. It seems the trends uh, these days in emergency management, whereas the fire service has always seemed to be involved in terms of a fire chief being an emergency coordinator, uh, a lot of, of communities now uh, bringing on separate emergency managers, emergency coordinators, as this is being recognized as a profession and, uh, and more hiring of emergency managers in communities seems to be, uh, again, the bit of the trend. Dan, you, you've been in both roles separately. Talk a bit about, uh, about being, you know, wearing the fire chief's uniform and being the emergency program coordinator at the same time. In 2010, I started in, the, in trail here as the deputy chief and emergency program coordinator. And having uh, both those hats was, was it, well, it was good, but it was also very challenging, especially when we get to larger scale events. And being able to actually respond to and support the community in regards to public education and that type of thing. In 2017, last fall, we, we actually decided to hire a full-time dedicated emergency manager, and that's just been a, a great resource for us to have and try and move our emergency management goals forward. So I, I think it's, it's no longer uh, a job that somebody can manage off the, off the corner of their desk. Um, a lot of communities are actually going to having multiple uh, emergency management staff even in rural areas because of the, the commitment that's required to, to plan for and prepare for and, and, and in best cases uh, develop mitigative solutions to reduce the risk to, to our communities. Tim, do you see the same thing, the same feeling for you in Ontario? Uh, not particularly. It's nice to have a, a dedicated emergency manager, but it's a budget concern. Now here, uh, where I am, we have a regional full-time emergency management coordinator and a team um, but as you know, disaster can strike geographically across an entire region. And then you have one regional coordinator um, who can be pretty busy through that uh, period of time. So I think every chief or um, CEMC should be trained up to that level as an alternate and an assistant. You can see, or I can see certainly in my role as an emergency coordinator slash fire chief, uh, that, you know, in an emergency operations setting, in an emergency operations center, normally we're dealing with various different uh, types of emergencies. If it's a flood, is what Dan was talking about, it, it takes the fire person sort of out of the picture. But what if you're dealing with an, a wildland interface fire, per se, where you're, you're, you're pulled in a couple of different directions, especially in a small town? Am I correct, Dan? Absolutely. And, and so in our program, under same as as Tim, you know, we've, we've got a, a regional emergency program. We've trained uh, an EOC staff team that's made up of the local government partners. And, uh, you know, we've got 20 key staff and probably 40 as we build it out fully, but uh, we're able to get our EOC activated and staffed appropriately and, and where appropriate, you know, uh, in the flood recently, we had 
the operations manager for the city of Grand Forks was the ops section chief and and, uh, and then roles were filled out below him and it was a really great opportunity to actually have staff from our, our partner local governments uh, come together and support the, the wider scale event. The same for you, Tim? Uh, yeah, um, actually, our we we train regularly as do most municipalities, or at least they should if they if they don't. Um, we actually have rotated our uh, our chiefs through the emergency management coordinator role uh, in that regard. Um, we've activated a, a few times in the last uh, few years, and it all seemed to to pan out relatively smoothly. Now our floods have been a major challenge down here, uh, just like Dan. Um, it's new to us, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know interesting that we've seen reporting and serve or studies rather and reviews both in Ontario and in British Columbia that found that both provinces uh, are largely unprepared for emergencies. Now, is that is that where we what you see at least from your side of the uh, of the fence, Tim? Absolutely, provincial uh, resources are pretty thin. Um, now they're all put there on paper. For, for instance, there was an IT strategy for resource sharing that, uh, you know, it was seven and a half million dollars was thrown into it in the province of, Ont- uh, of Ontario, and it was a non-starter. It never made it to air. Dealing with um, large-scale incidents like this, and as I said, I, this was our first flood. I've been on this department 28 years. Our first flood in this area. Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry came by with uh, 12 bodies, three days at a time. Uh, on two different occasions, supplying bags and labor, but they weren't permitted to place bags. So that's something we had to kind of talk about right on scene because that, again, that was new to us. We hadn't trained to that level before. We considered what about the elderly and the frail and the disabled residents on these properties and even low-income uh, persons who are affected by these these floods who don't have the resources to help themselves. They depend on us. Municipal human resources equipment are immediately stretched, taxed, and exhausted. Disasters start at the local level, so um, we all need to coordinate to levels of government on the way up as well. There, There is a certain level of expectation that we see uh, from the public, and I know recently in British Columbia, and certainly as they say in Grand Forks, as Dan, you have mentioned, that are, are we doing the best we can to manage the public expectations? We're trying hard, you know, like uh, this summer coming into the Frechette season, uh, we got a lot of information out about uh, personal responsibility to protect your own property and and put your own sandbags out. And and, uh, the challenge is that we get to a a catastrophic event and and we far surpass the capacity of local government to respond uh, simply to protect the downtown cores, the the infrastructure and and, highways versus like getting out to those neighborhoods and the individual level. So, you know, it's a real challenge. We uh, Volunteering in the community is a huge uh, component of being able to respond to a, an event like a flood. And we definitely saw that in our recent event where some days we'd have a thousand volunteers sandbagging um, to try and protect private property. At the homeowner level, uh, you know, you start to think and say educating our, our, our people Tim, is there a strategy that we should be doing something different in terms of of the education of the public so that they are uh, uh, aware of their responsibilities during an emergency? We have had that experience here in the last year, uh, preparing towards our next uh, major events. Uh, We've had um, community leaders step up, um, kind of either self-appointed or elected amongst that group, and uh, they talk for a, a neighborhood, for instance, as a whole. 
what our job is to do is to work with them, increase our emergency services presence and pre-planning, even with town hall meetings and uh, before the event literature. Um, the thing is, you have to have buy-in with these communities. Um, a lot of people are under the impression it's not going to happen here. So education is key, as well as the uh, presence being there and, uh, and having a, a well laid out plan and strategy ahead of time. A little background for us, Tim. Now, what kind of population in your area would you be dealing with in rough numbers? Oh, our total population is uh, just under 100,000. Um, our uh, flood areas that were highly affected here included 200 homes right on the shores of uh, Lake Ontario, 100 homes uh, in major uh, path of threat. Um, and that community actually stepped up. There was a very large advocate or two within that group who mustered together, uh, actually assisted us greatly, even moving forward at a uh, provincial political bureaucratic level. So uh, let's say about 100 households, way less than what Dan is dealing out there with there presently. How about your numbers, Dan? Well, I think we're uh, we're about 30,000 people, uh, but the, the geographic region takes four hours to drive from one corner to another. So, you know, it's a totally different concept. I mean, we delivered evacuation orders to 1,600 properties uh, three weeks ago, and we delivered those orders uh, across 300 kilometers of riverfront over an eight-hour period. So just uh, you know, the scope and magnitude is different. Uh, I think Tim's done a very good job of framing the educational component of the conversation. I think the other piece we need to think about is is the key role that our planning staff has, both in response in the EOC, but also in, in day to day in that we need to build back better and, and build back more resilient communities so that, you know, we built on a floodplain, uh, you know, over 100 years ago, as an example, um, because that was the place where the farm was, and we needed uh, we needed to grow our crops there. But we are still dealing with the the after effects of that, where we have properties on these floodplains. And if we're going to allow people to rebuild, um, what does that look like so that we don't have to keep going back and keep uh, suffering the same impacts on a what seems to be a more frequent basis as as we experience changes in our climate that definitely are having an impact on flood and fire seasons across Canada. And, and for both of you, more about uh, on the topic of public education and, and keeping the public informed, we, we tend to follow the trend, if you will, uh, of an all-hazards approach toward public education. Uh, is, is, Tim, is this the correct way of doing things, or should we be more uh, disaster-specific in, in how we educate the public? I actually think we should be disaster specific. Here in the province of Ontario, any emergency plan um, is still based on, that was part of the Auditor General's report that was pretty scathing. We're still basing, um, or at least the province is, um, emergency planning, testing, and all that sort of thing on 2008, 2009 emergencies. Emergencies have changed, as you uh, know, with climate change. So I think we do have to be more specific um, regarding um, uh, you, of course, you have to cover them all, I would say, within five years. But we know kind of what we just had. We knew what was coming. So if you can train to that, now nobody has crystal ball, but um, we kind of know where, where the climate is going to take our emergencies in the future. Dan, you, you agree? I do agree. And, and, you know, there's a there's a base level of emergency preparedness at the residential level 
that is, you know, have your grab and go kit, know how to contact your family, those types of things. But really, uh, you know, when we're dealing with people that are that have a flood threat or have a wildfire threat or or, or live in an industry town that has a hazardous materials, you know, component, we need to address those those threats and ensure that people understand the risks and prepare for them at an individual basis. And then it's our responsibility to, to prepare at the community level. How well does our, our 72 hour model fit into all this, Dan? It, it's not long enough. You know, you know, like I think um, we just experienced it where, you know, 72 hours is, is a blip in the schedule when you're dealing with a large scale event. I think seven days is a more realistic number that people need to be prepared for, to be resilient, to to look after themselves. I mean, I'm not trying to say we're not going to be there to help, but um, we're not going to be able to help everybody in 72 hours. And, and we definitely saw that recently. There's things we can do to change that, to help people. Um, but I think people need to expect that it's going to take uh, time for government for us as uh, practitioners in fire and emergency services to get to their door to help them, um, especially when we're dealing with flood type events. And Tim, you must agree that the uh, the resources are stretched pretty thin just to even think about reacting in 72 hours. Absolutely. Um, they certainly are. Now, uh, the 72-hour plan and the kits, it also covers what uh, um, social service like or at least an available service like Red Cross can cover, they'll prepare you, uh, assist you for your first 72 hours, let's say of homeless, homelessness or uh, lack of uh, um, all the facilities you need for life, um, for the enjoyment of life. Now, most people in that first 72 hours do not want to leave their home. They actually want to protect their property. They're there, they're working, they're hard. If they pull a trigger um, when efforts become futile, and they say, okay, we have to get out of here. Here in this province, Red Cross will cover you for the first 72 hours. Absolutely everything, accommodation, food, clothing, um, the necessities of life. Then, um, uh, not so much a wildfire, but with flood, um, if you don't have insurance and it's very difficult to get, you are on your own. If you do have flood insurance, it's only good for a one time. If there's another event next year, same property, same insurer, you will not be covered beyond that 72 hours. So it's a huge, huge challenge, and uh, uh, not only a, a tragedy for the families, but a burden for uh, everybody to try and assist. We talked uh, about evacuations, and it, I'd be interested in in some individual or community tools and solutions that have uh, have worked for you in planning. Dan, can you elaborate on that? In 2015, uh, the Regional District Kootenai Boundary created a, a mapping project where we pre-mapped every home in the Regional District and divided them into 158 zones. So we can actually issue and go to an evacuation alert or an order in minutes and, and have a predefined area versus the old system used to be that you would you'd have the event and, oh, let's get uh, you know our GIS staff in and let's start mapping it out and figure out what we need to do. And, and sometimes that can delay an evacuation uh, process by hours while you do that mapping. So our recent, uh, the fires we've had in 2015 and the flood we had last year and the flood of 2018, we're making improvements to that tool, but having a tool that we can be turnkey and issue our orders and alerts in, a, in an extremely timely, um, time-sensitive uh, manner, 
has been a was a huge success as i said earlier delivering those evacuation orders over 300 kilometers of riverfront in in one operational period wow and and tim for you yeah we actually uh jumped on board uh an outfit called uh rapid notify there's a u.s uh, contingent of that component there's a canadian version as well um Luckily, we have a, uh, in my response area, which is uh, 360 square kilometers, we have a, a nuclear plant. Um, so they are a very um, involved community partner for emergency services. Uh, between uh, OPG, Darlington, and the region, um, they paid for this system for us. It's called, uh, like I said, Rapid Notify, and it, it dials. Um, you can predetermine geographical areas, postal code, um, it, it even has the ability to drill down into demographics if you have the data to put in. It'll dial 1,500 calls per second, and each uh, registrant is allowed, can have three different ways of contact, SMS or text, email, and landline. It'll do them all at the same time, so it's very, very rapid. It can be very pinpointed on what you need, and we can also coordinate our pre-trained and predetermined volunteers to be on standby and target that group and call them out and say, here, we need uh, help with uh, sandbags in this area. Oh, those are those solutions like Rapid Notify, uh, of course, Alert Ready is, is, is on its mm -hmm. way out uh, and, and dealing with, uh, you know, staffing up your, your Red Cross or your, your local emergency social services. Is, is, is there room to expand this in terms of regionalization in, in particular and in your area, Tim, at all in Ontario? Do you have the space to expand what you do? I, I think we're already there. Um, now, it is relatively new for us. Every municipality in the region gets the benefit of this just because it, uh, the, the region has stepped in and is a coordinator of this. Although it's only OPG dollars, it, it is already fanned out and everybody has the opportunity at no charge. So, Dan, in British Columbia, is there room for improvement in particular in the Kootenays? Absolutely, there is. Um, we're not using a tool like that yet. I mean, one of the challenges we have is uh, in you know rural BC that uh, cell phone coverage is a real challenge. So we focused on our mapping project first because we knew that in some areas we simply had to go door to door to get that information out. We are looking at the Alert Ready and other products like that now as a as a phase two of that notification process and. We had, we had anticipated working on it this spring, but we got delayed by other, other uh, by response. Hey, Dan, Tim, you talked not... about, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, in, in terms of weather events getting more extreme, climate change uh, and, and such. From a fire service perspective, what solutions do you think there are that can assist us in, in being better prepared for these extreme events from, from our world? Preparation for uh, like any future events would be, um, I'll, I'll use the US United States Marine adage, in God we trust, all others we train. So I think uh, training, preparedness, and actually having the resources, the boots on the ground, that's what everybody is lacking. We have all kinds of uh, ministries and conservation authorities and provincial and federal governments who notify down. We have all kinds of that, but when it comes to getting boots on the ground, aside from the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, uh, here that helped us out very large last spring. That is the problem. There are a lot of solutions that come after an event. And Dan, I think you're you're obviously well spoken on the fact after an event like Grand Forks that there are other solutions that could have been done or could be done for the future. Would you agree? Yes, I would. Uh, I think the uh, Tim said it very well there. 
we as a fire service can't do this alone. Um, last year, the, for us, the BC Wildfire Service was a was a big component of the labor force that we used to deploy sandbags and to, to construct temporary works. And then um, this year, because of some changes in the structure, there was the, the days of deployment were limited and things like that. But I think more important than that, because once we get crews on the ground doing the work, it, it goes very well. We need to work on the systems to get the crews on the ground. Sometimes we can identify a need, but it takes 24, 48 hours to actually get that resource on the ground and start. And when I say resource, I'm talking human resource capacity, boots on the ground. We need to figure out a system to, to get those resources in place and working as timely as fast as possible. And, and that's where I see there really needs to be some horsepower, whether that's at the wildfire crews end, whether it's contractors, whether it's the military, as we brought into Grand Forks uh, later on in our event. Um, getting that help uh, is going to become more common as these events become more common, or, or, or requesting that help might be a better way to say it. The fire service, you know, in the old days, and I, I think I'm, I can speak to that uh, to a bit, have been around this uh, this business for a while, that in the old days, you know, the fire department went to just fires. And of course, as things evolved, we changed the service we provided. And the fire service is very good at, at adapting. Uh, Tim, I'm interested in your opinion as to how we can better pre prepare for the emergencies that we've never been to or never dealt with. And I'm thinking in terms of the new world. I mean, we're talking terrorism now and, and those kind of things. How can we be prepared as a service for those kind of incidents? I think sheer numbers of, respond, uh, of responders, uh, like Dan said, uh, getting the people out, um, trained, firstly, and then secondly, non-human resources, resourceful solutions in place, <clears throat> even on a, on a site locked a protected uh, cache of equipment that we can constantly train on. Uh, and one specific or a couple of specific areas of training would be a uh, uh, HUSAR, as far as terrorism is concerned, uh, heavy urban search and rescue, mass casualty incidents, evacuation or shelter in place, um, that sort of thing. We have to go on a larger scale. Now, here in the province, um, uh, most of our large-scale event uh, exercises are tabletop. Um, we sh Once every five years, we should be moving all of that equipment and uh, playing this game out uh, in real, almost real time, but with real equipment moving specifically on what uh, you mentioned uh, terrorism attacks um, on what could happen in those instances I think more and more uh, climate change uh, incidents as wild weather wetter wilder that sort of thing are uh, power outages and even ice storms which we've all experienced are things that need to be concentrated upon more um, pinpointedly and and Tim I think or rather Dan I think Tim commented on it about you know, getting the public uh, aware of what could happen and get out of that mindset that it'll never happen here. I mean, it's certainly not uh, out of the ordinary, if you will, for British Columbia, is it, Dan? No, it's not. And, and going back to what Tim was saying in regards to how do we train and prepare for, for events that uh, just are not normal to, to, in our response. And, and I think one of the key responsibilities as an emergency manager is, is the relationships we build and maintain with our, our public safety partners and, and NGOs and other agencies that we need to bring together in an emergency operations center uh, to support a community. Over the last three weeks, I've been the liaison officer in Grand Forks. We've had up to 60 different people, probably representing 40 different uh, agencies and, and, and uh, NGOs in the room at the same time, 
Um, and having those relationships ahead of time uh, builds the trust that we need in each other so that when we have that event that we that maybe our, our, our own agency didn't train for, but we're going to be a resource to, to respond, to support the police, that we've built a relationship of trust, that we, we know when, when that agency should take the lead versus fire taking the lead versus operations from the city taking the lead in a flood, that, um, that we work together and we have a system built that will uh, allow for that leadership to, to unfold as required to support the event. For you, Dan, and uh, in looking ahead now to the future, if you could change one thing today about uh, about your area and your department's abilities to respond to an emergency, do you what would it be? Um, well, I actually came up with three because I, I saw that question ahead of time. Um, <laughs> so, and this really goes back to our experience here in the last three weeks. So, timely access to resources. When we ask for help, it's not because we have a thought, you know, oh, we might need this in a couple of days. We're asking for help during an emergency because we need it. And getting those boots on the ground in a timely fashion is is a is an area that I'm going to spend some time on in the next in the coming weeks and months to ensure that in future events we can turn those resources loose as quickly as possible. The second one I had was recovery. We got to do a better job of building back stronger, more resilient communities and working with our planning staff to actually measure the impacts of these events and ensure that our decisions around uh, future development and those sort of things are built with a lens that is looking at this new world that we're, we're living in. Uh, and then a uh, last one, uh, I'm a, a big supporter and, and fan of the Canadian Red Cross and, and their capacity to support the community in a, in a large scale event. And one of the key tools that they have that uh, has been identified in the in the recent report looking at the 2017 floods and fires in British Columbia is electronic registration for evacuees. So this allows people to register wherever they are and, and, and ideally spend time with family or friends when they're evacuated so that they're well supported, but that we have a conduit to them to communicate with them during during the event, especially for these extended events. So those are the three that I came up with that are, are very important for us to move forward with uh, sooner than later. How about you, Tim? Um, the, the family communication idea there, Dan, is excellent. <clears throat> um, I, I think we need to, we are always concentrate on um, response. Uh, that's what we do at fire departments, boots on the ground. Unlike the province, they're, it's, uh, they concentrate on preparedness and response. Um, everything is lacking on prevention, mitigation, education, risk uh, reduction, and recovery. So uh, a couple with those items, um, along with cross-training, we we're, we work pretty good as a municipality with our operations people. Like Dan said, um, they are a huge part. We call them the other emergency service down here. They are a huge part when it comes to uh, flood and uh, uh, um, dealing with all those issues that come with floods. But I think cross-training amongst uh, departments in the municipality uh, needs to be increased here in my department, as well as cross-training uh, for large-scale events. We've had a little bit, but not too much, with police, EMS, and never with the military. They are a hard uh, unit to uh, be allowed to call out, um, and I think we need to concentrate and think big in the future. On that note, I thank you, uh, Chief Cal DC Calhoun, Chief Derby. Thank you for your time and your and your great insights today.
Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for joining us at Firefighting in Canada, the podcast, brought to you by Draeger. Draeger products protect, support, and save lives. Firefighting equipment you can trust. Visit firefightingincanada.com and click on Hot Topics for more episodes. 